Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October the 6th, 2009, and my guest is Daniel Willingham, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and the author of Why Don't Students Like School? Dan, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. The title of your book is a little misleading. It is about why students don't like school, but it's also of interest to anyone who wants to understand how our brains process information, uh, how we think, everything from the basic facts that we absorb to abstract reasoning. And it's made me think a lot uh, as a teacher and, of course, as a student, uh, which I hope I still am. You start with the claim that thinking is hard and the brain tries not to do it. Right. What do you mean? What I mean is that um, we normally think of humans as being terrific at thinking. And we, we sort of think of ourselves as the pinnacle of creation exactly because we're so good at abstract thought. And when you compare our abilities to other animals, there's no doubt we're very good at abstract thought. Um, What I mean by we're not very good at thinking is when you compare thinking, abstract reasoning, high-level thought, uh, dealing with novel problems, when you you compare the mental processes that are involved in those tasks to other mental processes that our mind and brain handle, they're actually, those those high-level processes are actually not all that effective. So I'm thinking about vision, for example. Vision is unbelievably reliable. Um, When you walk into a room in less than one second, you have an appreciation of the objects in the room, their textures, um, uh, their colors, their relative motion, and so forth. And you're almost never wrong. Compare that to uh, the processes involved in thinking where they're very slow, Right. It takes a long time to try and solve a problem. It doesn't happen in less than a second. Uh, they're unreliable. You may not even get to any solution, much less the right solution. Um, and they're also effortful. You know, vision doesn't take any effort on your part at all, whereas thinking is, is difficult. People will say, you know, after a, an hour of hard work on, uh, uh, on difficult problems, people say, you know, I'm tired out. I was, uh, I was working hard on that. Uh, and so what I argue is that most of the time we will avoid thinking if we can, and the refuge we, we move to is memory. Um, in our everyday lives, we're constantly encountering problems that if we wanted to, we could think about them in novel ways. And the example I give in the book, I think, is you, you go to the grocery store, and there you're confronted with you know, three dozen different varieties of bread. Three dozen is probably a, a low estimate. Yeah. Uh, right? There's just, you know, lots Huge and lots choice. of choices about what to get. So you could turn this into a really engaging mental problem and think, okay, I'm going to compare all these loaves of bread on price and on visual appeal and what I'm guessing they taste like and nutritional content and so on. But most of the time you don't do that. You just buy the bread that you usually buy. And what I argue in the book is that our day is is full of situations like that where you could turn this into a problem. It really, I mean, it really is a problem that you're confronted with. There's, there's some mental work to be done, but most of the time we don't engage with it that way. Most of the time we just move to memory, and memory isn't as reliable as 
uh, as vision is, most of us think we have a terrible memory. Actually, your, your memory is quite good when you when you look at it in that light. Um, that that you're constantly calling on it. Um, so we think our memory is not that good, but our memory is actually pretty reliable, and it's certainly more reliable than uh, high level thinking is. Well, I found the insights into memory to be extremely interesting. Uh, one of them being what gets into our memory. So talk about that because I think you, you make the observation that I think most of us believe, uh, and you say it's wrong, uh, that basically everything's in there if I could just tap into it. But in fact, our brains are very selective about what goes into short and long-term memory. That, that seems to be true. So this is the first thing that we have to make clear is that when you say something like, uh, and, and as I do claim in the book, it's, it's not the case. It's sort of a common myth that memory works like a, a video camera and everything is recorded in there and the problem is you can't get to the right things. You can never prove that that's not true, right? Because it's, it's really sort of proving a yeah. negative in it, right? right. And, and so we, we, have to, we have to be clear about that. Is but it operationally important, though? That's the question. That, and, right. And, and, and most, most cognitive psychologists who study memory don't think don't think that that's the case. They, they do think that memory is fairly selective about, about what ends up uh, going in there. Um, and the surprising thing is the selection process. Um, that w- Certainly when I was in school, I thought that what, what things go into my memory if I try and get them in there. You know, that's what studying is. It's studying is trying to put things into your memory. But when you think about it, especially when you're an adult, um, you know, I very rarely study anything anymore, but things are constantly getting up and getting into my memory. Um, everything that I know about current events and, you know, what my friends have been up to and movie plots that I've seen and so forth, all of that is stuff that just sort of happened to me, and some of it stuck with me, some of it didn't. Um, so then the next question is, okay, so what is the, if, if it's not, trying to get stuff in there, and actually experiments indicate wanting to remember something does pretty much nothing for your memory. And we know that from looking up the same word four times. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, I mean, my, my life is full of things that I wish I remembered, yep. you know, for example, where my keys are right yep. now. Um, so uh, the, the principle seems to be uh, the, the extent to which you, you think about things deeply and carefully. Um, and especially connecting what it is you're, you're, you're thinking about now to things you already know about. That's very helpful for memory. Yeah, give, it, give an example of that because I found that uh, to be extremely – even that, that's a very simple observation. In fact, you kind of make light of it in the book. You say, you know, we remember what we're thinking about, which seems like a, almost a, a tautology. Yes. But it's not, and it has a lot of implications, again, for stuff as a student that you want to remember, and also especially as a teacher, the, the pitfalls of teaching. And, and one of the things that I found deeply depressing at times is when I'll run into a student years after they've had my class, and you ask them what they remember. And, of course, they, they you know sometimes they remember important stuff, but a lot of times they remember things that weren't important to you. They were important to them, and they, you didn't realize it. And I started yeah. asking my students after class you know, what they got out of class, and it's often not what you put, thought you put in. Yeah, and there's, there's all kinds of work on this, especially for college students, what college students remember from a single semester-long course that they, that they had taken either a year ago or five years ago or whatever it is. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of what they remember is jokes that you told Stories that you told that that time the projector fell yeah. off the podium and cra- you know, things, things like that. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but people, they do remember the content as well, and, and people have studied that. The, the, uh, the, the forgetting rate is a little depressing after a year. I forgot. No, it's, it's something like you remember about 50% of, of what you learned a year earlier or something like that. Um, but it, it does take sustained um, work to, to affix something in memory so that you're, you're really not going to lose it later. Uh, but getting back to the point that you asked about, this idea that we, we remember what we think about. Yeah, it does. It sounds like an absolute throwaway um, when, when it's pointed out to you, but it's, it's a fact that certainly most of my students hadn't considered and don't know. It, it, it's actually a little more complicated than I've made it out because uh, the interesting thing about your memory is that it, it not only... I mean, when you think about it, if you can't restore everything, your memory system lays its bets in a very intelligent way. Your memory system says, all right, whatever you're thinking about now is something you're likely going to need to think about later. So to the extent that you think about it longer and more carefully, the more likely it is that you're going to hold on to it. The second component of it, and the way I said it's slightly more complicated than I made out, is that the, it also is stored, um, the, so the features that you were thinking about at the time um, so an easy way to understand it, for starters, is just thinking about the meaning of something versus the sound of something versus what something looks like. Um, so I think, in the, I think in the book I use the example of a barking dog. If you're walking, you know, taking a walk um, and there's a barking dog near you, you could either think about what the dog looks like, oh, this is a black and brown dog and it's this type of breed and so forth, or you could listen to the particular uh, characteristic of the dog's bark. Is he sort of saying hello or is he, does he, is it more of an angry bark? Or you could think about meaning and you could think about what, whether the likelihood this dog is going to bite me and so forth. And you will store the aspects of that experience that you are processing as it's happening to you. If you're thinking about what the dog looks like, that's the bit that you're most likely to remember. Now that implies you know, I don't remember you talking about this in the book, but that implies that you have some control about what you remember. So if you're not trying to remember anything about the dog and it just scares you because it sounded threatening and someone later says what color was it, you're less likely to remember. Right. But if you know for whatever reason, if there's a reason that you wanted to remember the breed of the dog, you'd have to make a conscious effort or you'd have a better chance of remembering with a conscious effort you're saying about uh, some – connection that that breed might have for other breeds you've seen or other you know you saw a dalmatian before and and therefore you think of the movie 101 dalmatians and so you remember it's a dalmatian exactly yeah that's exactly right so that's some hope absolutely so that you know when i say that wanting to remember things doesn't help it can help indirectly because it it helps um by encouraging you if you know what to do it encourages you to control your thoughts at that time such that they are most likely to help you remember something. The comparisons I'm talking about are is situations where you tell people to process, in a laboratory you tell people, okay, what, you're going to see words come up, and for each word I want you to, uh, for example, think about uh, how much you like the word, whether it's a pleasant word, makes you think of nice things, or an unpleasant word. Um, and rate it from one to seven, one being this is a terrible word, makes me think of terrible things, or seven, this is a, a marvelous word. And then half of the people, that's all you tell them to do, and the other half, you, you tell them to do the same thing. But then in addition, you say, 
uh, there's going to be a memory test coming up later for these words. And remarkably, the people who know there's a memory test coming up later don't do any better than the people who didn't know there was a memory test. And so what this tells us is that uh, you know, the, the desire to remember, and you can, you can you know, pay people uh, and tell people in advance, I'm going to pay you for, for the more words you remember uh, in the group that was warned about the memory test, doesn't make any difference. Um, wanting to remember something doesn't mean very much. It's the processing that you do. It's thinking about the words, in this case, rating it for how much you like it, that determines uh, the likelihood that you're going to remember it. So let's take it to the next level, which is the part I think is is really one of the deepest insights that you talk about, especially its implications for, for teaching and, and learning. And that's the role that memory plays in abstract reasoning. Yeah. So you can think about and you talk about mnemonics in in your book, and I think people people like this kind of thing. They like the idea that you, know, you go to a cocktail party and you want to remember somebody's name, and so you attach it to something else. There's a lot of tricks like that, and those are somewhat helpful for salespeople and other you know aspects of your life. It's good to remember uh, you know something important like Ty Cobb's batting average is 367 lifetime, and I just I'm stuck with that one. I just some reason it's it's in the hard drive, and I can't right. push it out with anything else. But uh, the deeper point you make really is. And these are – I mean I like the, the first point, but I think the deeper point is is that abstract reasoning, which we think of – I think us amateur – we amateurs think of as thinking really hard. You know, So I'll stupidly now when I think about it tell my students, you know, if you want to do well in my class, you really have to spend time thinking. And to my mind, what they're going to be doing is they're going to be sitting, puzzling over interesting economics problems. Problems most people don't, including me probably, know really how to do that. And what you argue in the book, which which is really um, provocative, is that a lot of what we think of as abstract reasoning, reasoning is really synthesizing things that are in memory and applying them from previous examples, looking for parallels, analogies, and so on. So uh, talk about how that abstract reasoning is tied to memory. Yeah, this, is, this has been something that is, has been uh, – psychologists have been working on a lot in the last 20 years is – Sort of figuring out how reasoning works and, and the extent to which um, memory is a, a, of the particular topic you're trying to reason about is important for reasoning. And the conclusion they're coming to, the, the, a little bit of, of each is true. So, sorry, let me back up. When I say each, so one, one extreme view would be, look, memory is just completely intertwined with reasoning and if you don't know something about the topic, reasoning about it is utterly hopeless. The other extreme view would be um, reasoning is a skill, it's a muscle, and once you are good at reasoning, any problem that comes down the pike, you're really going to be able to analyze it. Once you know modus tollens, you'll be able to, you know, this logical form of deductive reasoning, you'll be able, you know, you'll have mastered it, you can apply it anywhere you see it. Um, It looks like the former is probably more true than the latter, but it's certainly not the whole story. So knowledge is really important for reasoning, exactly for the, for the reasons you said, that many times we are drawing analogies to previous problems that we've encountered. Um, but analogies often don't occur to us when they, are, uh, uh, they look like they are about something quite different. So the cl- I, I give the classic example in the book, which is you give people... A, a, a problem to solve, it's a medical problem, um, 
that doesn't require any background knowledge about medicine, where you, you're trying to figure out how to save a patient's life and the patient has a tumor and you have to use these special rays to eliminate the tumor and so on. After you've done that, you give them a problem that, that is conceptually identical, but it, it, it's in a different sort of cover story, and this is a, a military situation. And even though people are seeing the problem immediately after either having solved the tumors and rays problem yeah. or being told the solution if they couldn't get it after a certain amount of time, people don't see the analogy. Um, yeah, that was a deeply depressing and, and again, <laughs> insightful um, yes. example for economics because a lot of times in economics, we, we're applying some principle. Incentives matter. Price can adjust and, and you shouldn't hold it constant. Uh, people respond to those incentives. You want to take those responses into account, and you've done an, a whole set of examples with one set of of application, and now you're going to apply to something else. And sometimes the students just don't see that it's the same problem with different, as you call it, surface structure. Right. Uh, it's the same underlying structure, but the surface structure is different. So I say, well, we don't know. I don't know anything about that. Right. I mean, anyone anyone who's taught has uh, has observed this a number of times that you've just you know students have just finished solving a problem, and you just change things a little bit, uh, give it a different, a, a different cover story if it's a word problem, and they, just, they, don't, they don't understand that it's the same. Now, you can get around that problem. With enough experience, you do, you do get around that problem. If, if that weren't the case, I mean, you, would, you wouldn't... Couldn't learn. Right? You'd be, really be in deep, deep trouble with it, but um, after a certain period of time, their expertise does develop where the surface structure doesn't matter and you understand how the parts of the problem relate and you're able to see that, that deep structure. Um, but there, there, are other, there are other ways in which knowledge is very, very important when you're, uh, uh, especially in, in a school context where we frequently want to teach students how to reason. So the, Scientific reasoning or historical analysis are, are two common uh, um, uh, common examples. So, in in history, for example, as your kids are getting up into high school and you're you're really trying to teach them um, how historians think about problems, you might tell them sourcing is very very important, and you need to think about the source of this document, who wrote it, for what reason did they write it, who was their audience, and so forth. Well, you know, it's easy enough to, to, for a student to memorize that as this is something that I'm supposed to do when I'm confronted with a document. It's quite another matter to be able to actually do it, to actually be able to deploy that knowledge. So a student may, you know, because they know they're supposed to do it, ask, okay, what's the source of this document? And they find out this is a, a letter written home um, by a, uh, an American soldier uh, to his brother, um, and it was written in 1917, and his brother lived in Arkansas. Well, you know, <laughs> that's fine, but now what do you do with that, right? right? Unless you know something about the history of World War One, and, and possibly, you know, is, is the fact that it was Arkansas relevant? Is that right. different than if they were a student, the soldier writing to New Jersey? All of this is background knowledge that's necessary to um, deploy this sort of thinking skill. I want I, to, let's stick with that example for a minute, because I, I think it's such a fascinating example of this of the trade-off and connection between facts and reasoning. So sometimes I get depressed thinking about uh, modern American education is is sort of the retrieval of facts. Uh, yeah. There's not a lot of abstract reasoning. So you know you need to know uh, what year America entered the First World War. You need to know who else was in it. Who was the president at the time? Right. And, right. and you spit that back on the test, and, and my response is generally, 
you didn't learn anything, and it tends to reward uh, good note takers and memorizers and uh, teachers who are lazy and want to ask really dull multiple choice questions. But then you want to go to that next level. You do have to know that stuff, right? right? You've got to have some, you know, excuse me, some background information about how America's involvement in other wars took place. As you point out, facts, which we are easy to, to denigrate as, a, as an educational goal, are crucial. Right. And yet if that's the only goal, it's a, it's a waste of time. Right. So that sweet spot between uh, memorization or whatever you want to call it, a, a stock of factual knowledge, and then taking it to the next level. Factual knowledge by itself seems empty, uh, but you can't have the deeper knowledge without the facts. Right. I mean, basically facts are necessary but not sufficient. And the the reason I think we um, run into the problem that you eloquently described is that facts are easy to test. They they seem objective, um, and so you end up setting uh, standards where that are largely fact based. If you put some sort of uh, stakes on the outcomes of those tests, it's very easy to understand why teachers are motivated to try to teach the facts and make absolutely sure the students know the facts, um, even if they don't know much else, right? That, that does become essential, and it becomes the be-all and end-all. Um, the, the truth is, I mean, factual knowledge is it's a student's proficiency with factual knowledge, and I'd be, to be clear, I'm making this up, but I'll, uh, I'd be willing to bet a little bit that it's true, yeah. if not the farm. It's probably correlated with students' deeper knowledge. The, the students who don't know any of the factual stuff at all, it's very unlikely they've got uh, skills that we really care about. Uh, doesn't mean there's any guarantee the students who have the facts do have those skills, but they're a little more likely to. So another, what I'm trying to say is these tests probably are measuring something important, but they're, they're leading to uh, really terrible consequences in the classroom, I think. Um, because of the way they're structured, they're, they're encouraging uh, teachers to stress facts above all else. And in economics education, uh, to me, the, the most depressing uh, version of this is the multiple choice exam, uh, which, uh, which, which will say something like, the marginal rate of substitution is A, the ratio of the prices, PX and PY, the ratio of marginal utilities, MUX. And that is just um, – all that's really doing – is getting people to understand a definition. Now, sometimes understanding language and jargon is useful in science or thinking, but that's really not what economics is. That's not what we should be teaching. Right, right. Or at least, I mean, this, this, it sounds like this is the kind of information that this is, really shouldn't be the finish line. This should be right. the starting line. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about another aspect. I want to come back really to the that surface structure, deeper structure issue, in, in, especially in, in the teaching of economics. Uh, the one example you give in the book, which is a, a very nice one, is uh, you know a farmer's got a field of a certain width and a certain length. It's a rectangular field. He wants to seed it with a certain uh, crop. He knows how much seed he needs per square foot of crop, and then you have to figure. And there's a cost to the seed, and so you have to figure out how much expenditure he's going to have. Right. So you figure that out, and that's a cool. That's a, a very basic word problem in in high school algebra. Then you have, ask them about, say, painting uh, the side of a barn, and all of a sudden the students go, 
we've never seen anything like this. This is, right. you know, we understand agriculture, but not painting. Right. And, right. And, and you want to say, but don't you see? They're both rectangles. You have to divide something into that afterwards, and then you have to do an approximation rounding the, to the nearest dollar, et cetera, et cetera. And what I'm curious about is, let me let me give an economics example of this. I have a problem I give my students. I'm going to throw it out there. I'm not going to answer it. I'll let, let the listeners uh, chew on it uh, for a few weeks maybe. I'll answer it in the in the um, comments of this podcast after you respond. But uh, if you put a, a tax on coffee uh, by the cup, which Seattle was thinking of doing, they ended up voting it down in a referendum. But for a while they were thinking about putting a 10-cent uh, tax on every cup of coffee in the city of Seattle. And I like to think of a bigger number to make it more dramatic. So let's say it's a 50-cent tax. And I asked my students, what happens to the size of a cup of coffee after if that tax passed? And some students think the cup of coffee on average is going to get bigger, smaller, stay the same. Uh, it's hard to know what the right answer is. Students have trouble thinking about – they have trouble getting started. So I show them. Okay, some, A few people can see it. It's very hard, but a few people see it. Most of them don't. They struggle with it. They try some answers. They're bad answers. What I do in class then is I take some of the bad answers. I say, let's see why this is the wrong path to go down. And then I show them the, the, what I think is the right answer and how I got to that reasoning. So they watch me recreate the reasoning that I went through. If you see that once, I have a feeling that's not very helpful. So what I try to do is I try to show them how that response to a change in prices and intervention in markets has parallels in other examples, trying to get them to see that the barn is like the crops, right? Right, right. But I wonder, is it, am I teaching them anything? Is it just, in other words, one, one view says, no, 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 they have to work at it. They have to try it themselves. They have to own the, the problem. Another view says, well, you know, if you watch it enough, you start to see that, hey, there's a lot of problems like this. What are your thoughts on that pedagogical approach of my students watching me work problems that are intuitive? They're not algebraic. They're not simple. Uh, they involve subtle, abstract reasoning versus them struggling, unable to do it over and over again until maybe some of them, it clicks. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, in general, I, I think uh, I, I'm a fan of an approach that's somewhere in the middle. I mean, from, a, from the point of view, straight, strictly speaking of memory, you would say if, you, if you've really got them engaged um, and, and asking them to do the problem themselves, suppose they're really motivated and they remain engaged, and what, they, what they're doing is going down all these um, incorrect mental paths. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen when they go down these mental paths? From the point of view of memory, they're they're going to remember the incorrect solutions. Now, a question is whether the extent to which they are going to associate the 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 uh, unsuccessful outcome with that mental path. So, what we're really talking about is what education folks call uh, discovery learning. The way you the way you posed it is really unguided discovery where you say have at it and you know see if you see if you can solve this problem most educators are are not a big fan of that that was um, proposed um, in its in its most vivid form in the early 60s and and people discover there are problems with it lots of students don't get the solution they get frustrated um, you know if, if with with an even mildly complex problem and again from the point of view of memory um, you're, you're worried they're going to remember the incorrect solution. <laughs> now, the counterexample to this, and this is where discovery learning can work really well, and so it is situation-specific. 
The example that's usually brought out by people who like this idea is think about kids learning um, uh, computer software, right? With no instruction, yep. kids, kids, you know, they fiddle with it and they learn. And, and what, what comes to my mind is that's because there's very immediate feedback in the environment yep. telling them whether or not they've been successful, Right, so you know, I'm trying to get the game or whatever it is to do thus and so, and I try something, and I immediately know whether or not it worked. So you know, discovery learning is is probably fine in situations like learning how to do computer software. Uh, frog dissection, probably not so much. You know, just sort of fiddling with a yeah. frog to <laughs> figure out how it works. I don't know if you're really going to learn that much. And in the in the economics problem that you described, my hunch is it's more like the frog than the computer program. I think it's. Uh, you, if you wanted to do any discovery learning, you'd want to be pretty thoughtful about um, planning so that you would uh, guide the students and that you would get the benefit of that method, which is that the student feel engaged, they feel like they're owning it. But at the same time, you, the instructor, kind of know step-by-step step what's going to happen and where they are very likely to go, and also what you're going to say and how you're going to guide them if they start going down the wrong path. Yeah, I don't know what it was like for you in graduate school, but in my case, my, a lot of the best learning that I had in graduate school was in was in study groups where we tackled these kind of problems, but we did them in groups where bad paths were shot down immediately by the brighter and more intuitive students, and you'd iterate your way towards the right solution, uh, but in real time with that kind of feedback, and uh, if you had a good study group anyway. Uh, right. And I, you know, ideally, a good study group was a group of people who were honest and open enough with each other to say, "Well, that's wrong because blah blah blah." Right. And that's kind of what you need to do. But just sitting by yourself saying, "Well, the cup of coffee gets bigger because oh, I'll take a stab at it." Yeah, that's a waste of time. Um, I, I agree. And and the you know the graduate student school, of course, is very different even than undergraduate, which is very different than high school. You know, the, you've got highly highly motivated students who already have a great deal of background knowledge. Um, and so it's you know th that kind of discovery, you know, imagining doing that in a fourth grade classroom or something, you really need to think about it. I think it's a quite different problem. Yeah, and as you talk about in the book, uh, there was some romance about that kind of learning at the lower grades that probably is not very effective. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen that myself. Um, well, let's switch gears. We had uh, Dan Pink on this program a while back, and he is a proponent of drawing on the right side of the brain. Uh, his claim is that left brain thinking, so-called analytical thinking, once meant uh, was the road to success. So if you're good at math, engineering, analytical stuff, you would make a good living and you would be successful in America. And for a variety of reasons that he talks about, that's harder to do. And he makes the claim that now right brain thinking or the synthesizing of left and right brain, creativity, empathy, and other factors are going to be increasingly important. Uh, what do you think of that argument? Have you have you heard it, and have you thought about it? Yeah, well, let me let me start by saying I have not read his book. It's one of a stack of books that I've I've got waiting for me. Um, so this is uh, is is, is going to be based largely on on your description and uh, as you've described it. So the first thing to be clear about, and I have no idea what he says about left brain, right brain, and whether he's really using that as a neuroscientific. Um, he uses this as an approximation. I think. Yeah, I know it's somewhat out of fashion. It is, but we don't need to. We don't need to go down that road. Um, 
you know, I mean, pr- prognosticating about the future and what what's really going to be important, it's, it's not something that uh, I know a lot about. It's not something that I've thought a lot about. I, I will say this. When, uh, when you think about being creative, um, creativity requires a lot of expertise. It, it, you know, you, you, it's very difficult to be creative about something where you haven't done a lot of the linear thinking. Uh, I think is one is really a prerequisite for the other. But I think there's a big emphasis these days, and I know a lot of schools, uh, I'm thinking of high schools now, are thinking, yeah, you know, there's a lot to this. We've got to teach our students to be creative. Can, yeah. you, can you teach creativity? If, if someone knows how to do it, this is, would be news to me. I mean, I, I don't think creativity is, is, is a, is a uh, skill that you can teach. I think what you can do is try and create a habit of mind in students to, uh, to be somewhat irreverent and to think, mm-hmm. okay, well, this, I'm, I'm accepting what you're telling me. At the same time, I'm going to think this through. Is it possible that there's another way to think about this problem? Um, my hunch, and, I, and it's, it's purely a hunch, is that a lot of this is, is cultural as well. I think Americans don't need a lot of instruction in the idea that we are individuals, there's value in every individual's opinion, and uh, don't, not taking everything as received wisdom uh, is, is, a, is a cultural value here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm comparing our culture to uh, some East Asian cultures and, 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 and probably India as well. And this is all based on anecdote. Um, but, you know, we, we, we do see a number of, of uh, students from China, for example, who come here, and some of them it's not a problem at all. I mean, they're, they're very prepared to be creative thinkers and so on. Others uh, are not, and they frequently will discuss um, that they were not encouraged to be creative at all in school, at home, anywhere else, and they were encouraged to respect authority um, that was a cultural value there. And uh, so I, I, I don't know exactly what to make of this because there's not great empirical data, but it's, um, it's an argument that makes a certain amount of sense to me. I think it's true. I, yeah. But again, it's an intuitive gut bit of intuition that's, as you say, anecdotal. Right. Uh, although I think you could flesh it out if you looked at uh, innovation, uh, although that's you know, a lot of other things are going on at the same time alongside that innovation besides uh, cultural values and, and how we feel about creativity. So it's maybe hard and, to disentangle. And, you know, honestly, I mean, it, it, it occurs to me, I'm, I'm talking about this as if there are no data. It, it's, it's highly likely that uh, sociologists and cultural anthropologists have thought about this quite carefully and do have good data on this question, and I just don't know about it. Yeah. Uh, while you were talking about creativity, uh, one phrase that jumped into my mind out of my memory bank was uh, thinking outside the box. Yes. And that's a phrase you're uh, somewhat critical of in the book, uh, or at least the prerequisites for doing so. Uh, w- remind me of what your insights were on that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Come I'm, on, it's on page I'm sure 17. Were, I'm, I'm sure it was awesome, whatever it was. <laughs> it was tr- I, I think actually I used, I used the phrase thinking outside the box specifically when I was talking about um, applying problem-solving strategies where when you would normally use memory, right? So, right. And, and as I mentioned this earlier when we were talking, saying that there are lots and lots of times that you are drawing on memory. You know, I'm, I'm about to drive home in a couple of hours. I will draw on memory in that case. I could think outside the box, right? I could think, am I really picking the best route home? 
is it the fastest in terms of traffic? Is it the most? Is it the greenest in 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 terms of fuel economy and so forth? I'm highly unlikely to do that, right? I, I could think outside the box, but this this is what I was arguing is that most of the time when people are, say you need to think outside the box, what they're saying is you are relying on your your memory of either what you have done or what others have done, and you need to consider the problem afresh. So I don't I don't think I was critical of it, or I didn't mean to be. Um, but I was just saying, you know, you can't think outside the box all the time. It's just it's, well, it's, yeah, it's I think, awesome. yeah, I think that's really important. I, I wanted to talk about that actually because I think it's a big issue in curriculum design and in K through twelve education, right? There's there's a big emphasis on thinking outside the box and again trying to teach creativity, which of course is a wonderful thing. Creativity is yeah. is great. But uh, I think it was Alfred North Whitehead who said that civilization advances. I'm paraphrasing here by the stuff by maximizing the amount of stuff we don't have to think about. Exactly. So while you know it's true, you're right. I could sit and start wondering: Is this the absolute best way to get home? Is it, am I going a little too fast? Maybe I should uh, move over a lane now. And we ne- most time we don't do any of that thinking. Instead, our mind's free to wander, and we think about. Our relationships, our friends, uh, what we're going to do tonight, and I, I mean, sometimes we're thinking about what caused the financial crisis. Uh, I am doing a lot of that lately, right. so that's very productive. Not to think outside the box while I'm going home, so I can think outside the box somewhere else. So, Absolutely, yeah, you're you're exactly right. I had, I had a friend in graduate school used to come up to me and give me what he called shave time problems, and by that he meant <laughs> when you shave, you're not thinking about anything else. You're probably just daydreaming. So here's some here's an important problem for you to think about, right? And of course, when I first started shaving, I you know I did have to think about shaving right? at, at, at risk of, of life and limb. Otherwise, so I, I think you're exactly right. This is what practice does for it. Uh, it does for us. It takes things that we used to have to um, use our, our mental energy for working memory and attention and so forth, and it uh, ensures that we don't have to use the energy for that and leaves us free to do other things. And I think you said it very articulately. If if you try and reconsider those things all the time, um, you know you, you you could be wasting time that could otherwise be better spent. Well, actually, th- there's a balance, right? Because yeah. it could be that you're you're automatically doing something in a way Holy that's stupid. a really dumb way to <laughs> sure. do it, right? So, is it what we would love is a reliable guide to know whether this is something I can safely do? I've always done. This is something I should reconsider. And if if that exists, I'd love to know about it. Well, I- to to quote a song, that's what friends are for. I mean, I think, uh, and I like to think that's what markets are for. I mean, we make lots of mistakes in life. Sometimes markets and prices tell us uh, you're you're buying a product that's too expensive. There are lots of alternatives, and when you're on, it's true you buy the same bread every week, but every once in a while there's a special or somebody lets you have a free sample, and you realize, hey, I I like rye bread better than whole wheat, and you, and you get out of a habit. Right. And similarly, your friend says, "How'd you get home today?" And you tell him, "Say." Well, don't you know you should take 66 is better. Right. So, you know, I think, um, you know, as you say, I think we get into habits, but our social interactions through either our market transactions or our social relationships yeah, curb put. those. Nicely put, yeah. I, I want to take the example, though, of, of this uh, thinking outside the box process idea down to a smaller level. Uh, when we think about, say, math education, I've noticed there's a trend toward understanding the process uh, so that – you know, this idea that, coming back to earlier discussion, you know, facts are overrated. You can always look up facts. You can always yeah. find, and now especially, the internet's so great. You have a calculator for, for math, you know, multiplication, long division. We don't really need to teach our students that because you can, it's better to know the process so you can just, that way you can always figure it out again on your own if you need to. Right. And yet, I think that's gone a little far. Do you agree? Um, 
in some ways I do, and in other ways I'm I'm not sure it has. So the, uh, let me say a couple things. First, the uh, the, the um, National Math Panel wrote this report uh, at the request of uh, uh, President Bush. Uh, it came out a year and a half ago or something like that. And what they argued is you really need three types of knowledge. You need to know math facts. You need to have memorized the multiplication table and simple addition and subtraction. And Distributive law, things like A times B plus C is AB plus AC, I assume, would be something well, like and, that. And later, yes, you would, you would get to that point. But it, it, you know, in, they just went up through pre-algebra okay. and said, you've, you've got to memorize math facts. Um, you also need to memorize procedures for uh, how things are done. When you get to long division, you need to know what the procedures are. And the third thing you need is conceptual knowledge. You need to understand why these things work. And the way they summarize the literature is whatever it is, we're actually doing pretty well on the first two, or at least okay. We're probably not where we should be. When I say we, I mean American kids up through the eighth grade. Uh, we're terrible on conceptual knowledge. Um, elementary school kids are spending a fair amount of time on math facts and, and procedures, and so they're, they're fairly competent. And in fact, when you look at international comparisons uh, of U.S. kids to other industrialized countries, the younger kids are, the better they do. And I think that's because factual knowledge and sort of pretty mechanical application of procedures will still take you pretty far on those tests. On international comparisons where kids really start to, the U.S. kids really start to look bad compared to their international peers is uh, in high school and beyond. And uh, I would I would pin that to conceptual knowledge. And the National Math Panel uh Argued that the conceptual knowledge of U.S. kids is is really quite bad. So, what do you mean by what do you mean by conceptual yeah, knowledge? Yeah, so conceptual knowledge means why the procedure works. That's essentially what it means. Understanding why, uh, for example, the classic example uh, usually given here is is why is it when you're dividing fractions, the thing to do is to invert and multiply. So every every school kid learns or most school kids learn to do that, but they probably don't really understand why that works. Um, one of the really remarkable uh, statistics I, I read recently is that a very high percentage of, of sixth graders don't really understand what an equal sign is, what it means. Lots of them think that it means, and when they see an equal sign, that means put the answer here. <laughs> they don't understand that it, it signifies equality on two sides of an equation. So imagine what that what that child handicap. thinks when they when they encounter algebra and they see two things on you know something on both sides of an equal sign, right? That's going to be very confusing. Um, similarly, if you don't really understand division conceptually, when you get to algebra and you encounter factoring, you're not going to know that this is you know closely related to what you've been doing all along. Um, so on the one hand, uh, I, I hear what you're saying that it, it seems like there, there, there's definitely a strain of um, uh, thought in ed- math education these days that what we're what we're really missing is conceptual knowledge, and uh, sometimes that's pitched as there's too much emphasis on fact. I would say the first part of that is right. We are missing conceptual knowledge, but the second part is wrong. We we need to maintain the factual knowledge. Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting example, the inverting of fractions. I would assume that would be something akin to driving uh, while you're talking on your cell phone and, and eating at the same time. Uh, an example used in the book is something you, a human being can do and not have an accident most of the time, which is remarkable because uh, your brain is, is just on autopilot on the driving part. 
right. you know, I, I don't think you want kids just every time they get to inverting a fraction. Let me say it differently. I think there's a trade-off between getting kids to understand uh, why you invert uh, versus knowing that you should invert. And it's, um, I think that's an incredibly difficult trade-off, you know, thinking in terms of my own kids and, and what skills they learn and what skills they're, they're weak in. Uh, very difficult to figure out where the sweet spot is in that trade-off between uh, mastery of the process and understanding the process. A tough one, I think. I mean, I would argue that it, it, we can't let it be a trade-off. We have to make the target that they're, they're going to have both. Because I think that the, the really tough thing about conceptual is we always think about that math is sort of hierarchical and one, one skill builds on the next skill. I think that's really true at a conceptual level. If you don't really understand the number line, you know, very early on, you don't get this concept of how the number line works, and uh, then getting to the next conceptual level is really, really difficult. And what you as a student are going to do at that point is you're going to memorize procedures, and you'll, you'll essentially never catch up you switch on the off. Yeah, You switch off the real thinking part, which is... Um... And, and, I mean, that's a recipe for getting kids to hate math. Yeah. Right? Is just say, here, I, I don't, you know, I know you don't understand it. Don't worry about just it. When you're right confronted answer, with yeah. this type of problem, this is what you do. Of course, the flip side of that is this idea that, you know, the right answer is not really important. It's uh, understanding the, the, the fundamentals. And I think uh, we've maybe gone too far occasionally in that direction. You know, the, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about this. I mean, I, I hear those arguments as well. I, and I think these are not really embraced by very many teachers. Uh, you know, of, of course, there are three million teachers in this country. There's a big diversity of opinion. I mean, the teachers that I run into are usually pretty level-headed about this stuff, and they know the theories, and they kind of pick and choose from theories. And when you get when you get to stuff that's pretty far out there on a limb, like the right answer just doesn't matter at all, it's hard to find teachers who are really big supporters of those views, in, in my experience. But there is this push toward approximation, which is a wonderful skill, right? Right. I've seen it, in my, again, in my kids' education. Uh, and, and as an adult, as an economist, it's extremely useful to yep. do what we'd call a back-of-the-envelope calculation. You know, I, I do these all the time to get you know, a rough idea of you know, how many mortgages are there in the United States or what's the wealth of the United States in the housing stock. Issues like this, it's useful to be able to do that quickly without having to look it up. Again, even though the Internet's available, those yep. kind of questions can, can take a while. And it's, or The one I've been thinking about lately is you know, how big might the ultimate cost of the crisis be in terms of bailouts and rescues, and what is that going to translate into per household as a transfer from the average American to some of the richest people on Wall Street, which really depresses me. Yes, so right. that kind of back of the hand thing is useful, right? You don't want to do a, I think a precise calculation like that, but right. you do want to learn how to do precise calculations. That's all. <laughs> right. Uh, no, no, no argument. No yeah. argument from me. Well, let, let me ask a related question. Well, one thing I've been fascinated by, and we've talked a great deal in this program and other contexts, is the use of statistical analysis to bolster a viewpoint. And I assume there's a great deal of empirical work in education, uh, not neuroscience research. But I'm talking now about, say, efficacy of, of a particular technique. And as an economist, I know how – a particular curriculum. I know how difficult it is to really measure those things precisely and – not precisely, even correctly, vaguely, approximately. 
And I assume there's some axes being ground by people who are pushing a, an agenda of, of a particular educational theory or philosophy. I'm curious what your perception is of the empirical work in education like that and whether you think your kind of insights from neuroscience are making it into curriculum design and education schools uh, at the most basic level. Well, I'm a relative, I mean, for in my own case, um, I, I, you know, I have no idea whether I'm, I'm being heard in schools of education and curriculum designers and so forth. I mean, you know, I do, I do hear from some people who, who view what I'm doing positively. Um, I'm not writing for the academy. You know, I'm writing, I'm writing for teachers. Um, and, and, and that coupled with the fact that I'm a relative newcomer, you know, leads me to suspect I'm probably not having a huge impact, um, within the academy. Um, going back to your, your early, the earlier part of your question, what's, what's the status of empirical research in education? Education has a, has a very bad reputation, uh, in colleges uh, of arts and sciences. And I'm, I'm in a college of arts and science. Um, and so, I mean, uh, you know, you don't have to be in the college of arts and science. You just need to be at a university to know that schools of education have a really bad reputation for research. I think it's really undeserved. I think there's a lot of absolutely top-notch research that gets done in schools of education. Whether it's really heard is another question, and this is a, a, a problem that I've been thinking about the last couple of years. I mean, I think it's it's uh, the difficulty in getting that research heard is um, a function of the way ed schools are, uh, uh, are staffed. Universities decided a long time ago that the, the way to have a school of education was to put uh, scholars from all different disciplines into the same school. So you've got historians and people from uh, critical theory and, and you know, uh, psychologists and you know, every, every field you can think of pretty much can be made relevant to education. And so they're all there together. Well, the, the idea that this would lead to a beautiful interdisciplinary flowering of knowledge and thought is is a lovely idea, but yep. it's, it's not true at all. No. And instead, what you have a bunch of people who have different definitions of what it means to know something, and have different definitions of uh, what what is should be considered persuasive evidence. Now, that's equally true in the College of Arts and Sciences, but psychologists don't talk to English professors that much, and no one expects them to. And we're working on different problems, and so it's fine. You know. I, uh, They've got issues that are uh, important, and it's great, and I'm glad they're working on them, but it doesn't really affect what I do and vice versa. And in ed school, that's not true at all. You've got people who have the same questions and have very different criteria for what it means to answer that question. And the result is not a beautiful interdisciplinary flowering. The result is cacophony. Yeah. Um, and so no one's voice is really being heard, not the great empirical research, which is the stuff that I know, nor, I imagine, are the people from the humanities and, and other disciplines who have different ways of approaching the very same questions. I don't think they're being heard either. And I think it's a significant problem that ed schools ought to pay some attention to. Let me ask the question in a different way, really different way, which is, uh, you know, what it's makes... the question you really meant, right? Well, I don't know. Well, I, <laughs> I would time answering that one. No, so. I, was curious, <laughs> I was curious about the empirical work, because I think... You know, I think we desperately, as parents and as teachers and as students, want to know what works. 
Yes. And I think what works is very, very hard to discover up to a okay, point. Okay, yeah, right, 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 right. Different th- question, yeah. But okay. I think there are some fundamentals, and one of the things that I think works, and I want your your take on it, is um, we know – I tell this to students all the time when they go off to college, high school students. I say, take the great teachers. Don't take the great subjects. Yeah. Uh, if you if you have a subject you're really interested in, you have a bad teacher, you will get almost nothing out of it. And a great teacher can make anything an interesting intellectual journey that you'll grow from and learn from and, and find useful later in life. And I think – so my real question – forget this what works question. I think one of the things that, that I think does work is a great teacher. And I want you to talk about what makes a great teacher. I, I learned some things from your book about what I think makes a great teacher that I didn't know before, and I'd like to hear you talk about it. I think it's a I think it's a tremendously difficult problem. So let me let me take it even one step back and and point out um, that what makes a great teacher, what makes a successful teacher, really depends on what your definition of the point of school is, what you think the goal of school is. Great point. This is this is something that you know Americans don't agree on and have quite different views on. So um, I was actually just this morning thinking and writing about Bill Ayers, who became famous in uh, in recent times. Uh, uh, you know, he was the the guy who was supposedly the the terrorist who uh, Barack Obama was was palling around with. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, in in his more recent work, what he's he is a professor of education at the University of Illinois Chicago, and he um, is interested in what is called social justice education. And the goal of social justice education, really at the forefront, is getting people to think uh, for themselves, a tremendous emphasis on the fact that this is not a just world, and part of the uh, goal of students and of teachers is to make the world a more just place. Now, I can't, think, the- I can't think of a more uh, insidious and unproductive philosophy of education, but uh, maybe he's right. And, well, I, I, and I say that only because we all disagree about how to get to a just world. That's the only reason I think that's a dangerous educational philosophy. But go ahead. Exactly. But it, it, what's interesting is if you, read, if you read some of what he's written, one thing that is clear is he can't believe anybody would see things differently. Yeah. He really is so, you know, believes in this so passionately. He thinks, I mean, this, isn't it self-evident? This, this is what, you know, you and I may disagree about methods, but surely we all agree that that's the goal of education. Now contrast that with the Partnership for 21st Century Skills, which is an outfit in the Southwest which is trying to serve as a catalyst between business interests and government and schools. And they now have 13 states that have signed on to the, to the Partnership for 21st Century Skills uh, goals. And what, what, that's actually a quite serious commitment because it means that you're going to rewrite your standards it means you're going to uh, do professional development for teachers uh, f- uh, for those standards. It means you're going to redo your assessments. The the quite explicit goals of 21st century uh, partnership for 21st century skills is all about that education is for making sure that you can get a job. It's for that students should be able to you know get a job when when they finish, and we need to look forward to what the new economy is going to look like. I'm over two so far now. That's social, <laughs> social justice and and trade and, schools. And we so. don't we don't we don't even need to talk about this, right? My my uh, my about which one of well, how good those ideas are. My point is, this is not a conversation that's being had in any state yeah. that I know of, right? And this is this. Let's not forget, this 
is not a federal matter. This is education is, is a statewide matter. Every state runs its own show. But no one's talking about what the goals of education ought to be. So when we talk about what constitutes a good teacher, all of us have sort of an intuitive sense of what a good teacher is. Um, but defining it independent of the goals is, is really kind of is impossible. Now, that said, almost anybody would say a teacher that the students enjoy learning from and where they actually learn something, we could start there, yep. right? Right, And that would, I think everybody would be pretty happy. So, uh, you know, what I said before I think is true, but let, let's, you know, you, you have to start somewhere, right? You'll, you'll never do anything if you say, oh, my God, we have all these definitional problems. We can't do anything. So well, let's use that as our definition of a of a good teacher. Um, I was going to use a different dichotomy. I, I thought you were going to – if you'd asked me, I would have said uh, – you know, when you say people have different goals, you know, I think there are a lot of people who want their. You know, it comes back to the title of your book. I think there are a lot of people who want their kids to quote like school, right? And and a lot of popular teachers are entertaining, but not terribly informative. You know, nothing drives me. The two things that drive me crazy are the people say she's a great teacher because because her class is so much fun. Uh, right. Well, it's easy to make class fun. That the challenge is to make it fun and and educational. The, right. sec- the second one I hate is, well, you know, he really knows his stuff, but he just can't communicate it. He can't come down to our mm-hmm. level, and I always want to say, maybe he doesn't know his stuff. You know, you think that because he's so complicated and and convoluted that he must be a genius. There is an alternative right. theory, <laughs> perhaps uh, more parsimonious exactly. explanation here. And and for me, that you know, the, and I'm thinking now more about about high school and and grade school than than college, though it applies in college. For me, the you know, it's the popular teachers in in high school and in grade school are often not not the best teachers. Yeah. Uh, they can be right. The best teachers are the ones who are popular and who transform their 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 kids in all kinds of interesting and, and wonderful ways and and get them excited. But but let's talk about those kind of teachers. And the reason I mention it is because you suggest in the book that. The teacher-student relationship counts for a lot in and of itself, and that's my experience as well, both as a parent, as a teacher, and a student, that a lot of the best learning takes place when we respect those t- those teachers, and we yeah, want to there, earn their respect. Yes, absolutely, There and there are pretty good data on that, especially for the early grades, that the relationship with the student is, is tremendously important in the early grades. As you get older... And the you know you're you're a little more resourceful in dealing with someone who you don't really like that much. You don't get along with. You've got more, um, you know, a, a kid who's in ninth grade will have more strategies to sort of get get past the fact that they don't like the teacher, um, and and still manage to learn something from them if they're well organized and and you know. Uh, and sort of pedagogically effective, that's very, very difficult for a first grader. You know, if a first grader is fearful of a teacher or uh, doesn't like the teacher for some other reason, that's going to be really, you know, that, that's almost a deal breaker, I think, yeah. uh, for, for that student. Um, but these two dimensions that we're, that we're alluding to, that, that the teacher needs to be well organized and, and know his or her stuff, but at the same time be approachable. Um, they're they're pretty reasonable data. The, the best data really are are actually from from college students, um, showing that when you talk to undergraduates about what uh, what they thought of individual professors, it, it really boils down to those two dimensions. If you just got if, you know if you just ask the students two questions, 
Did they seem like a nice person? And <laughs> did they come to class well organized? You know, you're eighty percent of the way done towards knowing what that what that student thought of that uh, professor. Well, the thing I also always think about, and maybe it's just because it's um, convenient for my worldview, is passion. Uh, I'm very yeah. passionate about economics. I like to think that it counts for a lot in my success or lack of it, and as a teacher. And maybe that's just comforting me because I'm passionate. I don't know. Do we know anything about that? Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I don't. And I mentioned these two dimensions. I don't know which one it loads on, um, but I, I, there, I know there are also data on that. I was actually really surprised initially when I first saw when I first started teaching. I thought, why is enthusiasm in the classroom is the way it's usually described? And then when you think about it, if the professor seems bored by what he or she's talking about, yeah. why in the world would you be interested? Right. So yeah. It, does make sense when you think about it. Yeah, when I used to teach uh, principles of economics at UCLA, I had about 500 students in my class. No, 390, I think it was, about 390. And uh, it was a big room, and I never used a microphone. Yeah. Uh, I felt if I used a microphone, uh, I'd lose them. I, I, and if I wasn't going to use a microphone, I had to really uh, emote. <laughs> I had to show, yeah. I had to yeah. really be pumped up because otherwise I, would, I wouldn't be able to reach them. Right, right. We're almost out of time. Um, let me ask, close with an open-ended question. If you could change one thing or two things about education in America based on your insights from neuroscience, what would they be? Well, they wouldn't be based on insights from neuroscience. I think that um, what – if I can make it really general, I would say I would get policymakers – to rethink the jobs of all of the adults in the system. So I mean, not only teachers, I mean, the people who are writing the standards for each state. I mean, the administrators uh, in the district and in individual schools. I mean, professors in schools of education. I would get them to rethink the roles of all of those adults from the point of view of cognitive science. Because what I'm going to argue in my next book is that many of the problems in education are systemic in that we are posing cognitive problems for teachers, administrators, writers of standards, and so on that are impossible for nearly anyone to solve. Our expectations of teachers are absolutely ludicrous. Nobody could do, and I shouldn't say nobody, very, very few people could do what's expected of a teacher. It's just the job is too hard. And so most teachers aren't able to do it, and so they do something else that approximates that. Hmm. Um, but as I said, that's the next book. Well, my guest today has been Dan Willingham, author of Why Don't Students Like School. Dan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much. It's been fun. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.